If libertarians had their way, everyone would be shooting themselves up with smack at raves and dancing themselves to death. Well, I know I certainly would be. Welcome to episode 109 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I was recently on the James Fox Higgins show, along with Sven Starfury. We talked about loads of stuff. Get a load of this. Welcome. It's Tuesday night. It's the James Fox Higgins show, and I'm joined as ever by Sven Starfury Lowe. Hey, Sven, how are you? Life is grand. Excellent. And we have a special guest hailing from Scotland, our good friend Anthony Samaroff from the Liberty, uh, the Scottish Liberty Podcast. How are you, Anthony? Truly excellent. All the better to be with you guys, naturally. Excellent. Well, the vibes are clearly very good tonight. and um, That's my uh, pol- politically correct, polite answer. That was good. I liked it. Now, uh, you've got a new book out, Anthony. That's very exciting news. Oh, that is true. I do have a new book out. Thanks for reminding me. I totally forgot. <laughs> it's uh, called Universal Basic Income for and Against. Oh, good. Well, I thought we were about to have a whole bunch of triggered capitalists, but um, but you threw in the against as well. <laughs> right. I should add that you can get a free ebook copy from my website, beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI, because I'm a hopeless altruist and uh, uh, felt the need to put uh, the ebook out for free. So uh, I guess that's one of the things. We'll- I know, that's true. But um, I feel that it's really important that uh, liberty-minded people, pro-capitalist people, get this book because it's written specifically to help us win the war of ideas. It's full of... It's a bait-and-switch. It's a Trojan horse. I start with the arguments in favour of the universal basic income, then I explore some against it, then I go through a whole bunch of libertarian policies with figures that would be, that would alleviate poverty. And, okay, there's always going to be some people who are entrenched in their particular political beliefs, but for the average-minded person, I find it really difficult to imagine them reading it. Um, and not going, wow, you know, this makes a lot of sense. Maybe not everything, but there's definitely some, um, there, there's definitely something for everyone where they'll go, wow, yeah, that there, that makes no sense. I talk about how the state um, has pushed the price of housing through the roof, how central banking has eroded the value of our currency, and uh, how that harms the least well-off. I even talk about how regulations and occupational licensing harm the poor. Um, what's the most expensive thing you'll ever buy in your life? Your house. Ah, see, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But no, it's actually the government. Most people All in the right. UK nice. work. Yeah, most people work twenty to twenty-five years um, to pay off, um, for the government. So mm-hmm. I talk about stuff like that. I talk that, about that's, free that's trade. That's a really great way to frame it economically for people to understand when, when guys like Stefan Molyneux will say that, you know, it's partial slavery, you know, that uh, it's, right. you know, like 100% slavery, everyone agrees is wrong, but somehow we've arrived at 25% or 50% slavery and, uh, and we're okay with that. So this is, mm. this is a well, major libertarian argument against government. And we're to, not only okay to frame with it, it, it's the price of civilization. Mm. Mm. To frame it even another way as well that might be useful is to show people that they're actually the customers of the government. And if you got the kind of service that we get from governments, from uh, like a corporation or a shop or a restaurant or something, like we'd be fucking disgusted. So they go out of business very quickly. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why government is so bad. I mean, if Starbucks were the only people who were able to provide a coffee, I don't think you'd expect a very good coffee at a very good price. Even with all the intentions in the world, even if there's good people working in government agencies to try and um, make them efficient and do a good job, what have they got to compare what they're doing to? You know, they can't they can't copy innovations by other people in the same sector because they're you know they're the only show in town. Yeah. So the, there's just no no incentive for improvement. I was just on the on the uh, on the line to the Australian Tax Office yesterday to sort some stuff out, and um, you know, on hold for ages, <laughs> I wrote the Facebook post that their their hold music is clearly designed to inspire customer suicide but um i was uh, i was thinking at the end um oh, i wonder if i'll get one of those you know like feedback surveys where they'll ask me you know how how their service was <laughs> and i realized no, of course i fucking won't they don't care if i like their service or not they just want the money right because you can't take your business elsewhere and that's one of the main motivations for an organization to do a good job their customers will go elsewhere they'll vote with their feet if they don't pre- a reasonably good service. Yep. Indeed. So we've got a lot to talk about tonight, and I would like to get into uh, some of the arguments for and against um, universal basic income in a little bit, but uh, we've also got uh, some some rather alarming news from Australia with the recent DEFCON 1 music festival in Sydney. Um, and we will uh, we'll get right into that. There were a couple of deaths, drug-related deaths, and the state premier of, uh, of New South Wales is, has, uh, in response, come out and said she intends to ban the event from the state and make sure it never happens again. And, she, I mean, she's gone straight to... Let's just get into it. <laughs> she's gone straight from uh, two people dying of drug overdoses and, you know, like many hundreds of cases of people being caught with drugs and being arrested and charged... Um, I think there were eight or, or there were several um, overdoses that re- resulted in hospitalizations and, uh, and two deaths that I'm aware of. But she's gone straight from that out of, what, 100,000 or 80,000 mm. people, a huge event, that a, a, a tiny proportion of them have made poor individual choices um, and, in, and resulted in their deaths. And now she's punishing the event organizers, the DJs and the music producers um, the food vendors, you know, all of the people who benefit economically from the event, uh, who have nothing to do with those poor decisions being made, other than the fact that it's a dance music festival, and drugs go well with dance music. So, is that a? Do you th- Anthony, do you think that's a reasonable solution <laughs> to ban the event? Well, it's <clears throat> well, it's a ritual human sacrifice, James. I mean, if we want eighty to a hundred thousand people to have a good time, we need to make some sacrifices and. <laughs> If anything, we just uh, throw them on the pyre, and uh, you know we. <laughs> well, I think um, I think I, the answer just, is they don't want eighty to hundred thousand people to have a good time now. Um. Okay. Yeah. There. So, what I would say is obviously, well, what level do you want to start at? One thing is maybe the fact that drugs are prohibited, um, caused this because you know you you pop a couple of pills, you're having a good time, you start to not feel so good. Um, 
if the drugs weren't prohibited, you might go straight to a security person and say, hey, like, I've had a couple of ecstasies, I was having a good time for a while, but now I'm feeling really bad, like I've drunk water, nothing's helped, helped, and I'm kind of freaking out. And uh, they might take you to a medic, whereas if you know that it's prohibited, you don't want to get embarrassed, you don't want to get chucked out, you don't want to go to jail, um, you know, you don't want your friends to get in trouble, so you just keep it to yourself, and the next thing you know, um, something breaks down inside and um, you know you you end up in hospital or in the side case of these two people end up dead mm. Mm. no it's it's tragic and I mean the war on drugs has been a massive failure for you know the 50 years or whatever they've been trying to do it since the 60s or 70s and as usual with most government policies they're only trying to cure the the symptoms of something that's much deeper and mm -hmm. frankly I think like all all um you know habitual drug use in in the end like self-medicating probably early childhood trauma which maybe right. you anthony might be able to speak more about so i don't i don't see these policies you know actually helping the situations people have done drugs forever you know we've humans yeah. have always sought ways to modify uh, to modify their their consciousness you know so that's not going to change but yeah now, a bit of a throwaway line from you there sven but i should uh should let people know anyone watching who doesn't know anthony not only is he an avid economist and, and a writer on economic issues and a host of the Scottish Liberty podcast, but he's also a counsellor with a great deal of experience working with people and their, um, their, their personal uh, issues and crises that they face. Tell us a little bit about your background there, Anthony, and, and we'll, we'll certainly delve into the psychological tonight as well. Yeah, um, what I do for a living is I'm a therapist. I also do some coaching, and some people come from uh, for a combination of both. And yeah, I'm deeply interested in psychology. Um, I put out a episode of the Scottish Liberty podcast called "The Psychology of Statism," where I explored my um, views on the the links between the two. I guess I'm interested in well, uh, human well-being, human flourishing, and human freedom. And one one aspect of that is obviously uh, political liberty, because um, you can't rise to the your full potential without freedom without outer freedom but I, I as the more I go along the more I see that the main limits on people are the inner shackles the inner state mm. the uh, that oppresses them um, the the word states a very interesting word isn't it because it does actually psych this is getting a little bit Jordan Peterson in your ass with the several levels of meaning in a word like what is a state a state is something that doesn't move and is solid and uh, it's also all encompassing um, it's the, the the state the state of things right and it, and it, and it is true the state is slow moving and the um, and the public set as the private sector is fast moving and things change quickly and I feel like there's the, I see that as analogous to our inner environment where there's all these habits and parts of our personality that are very fixed and slow to move and can take a long time to change and a lot of the time they drag us back they want us to be secure we are adapted to an environment um, what makes human beings so successful as a species is our uncanny ability which outmatches any other species to adapt to our environment but also to adapt our environment to ourselves now, as adults, as free individuals, the most evolved part of us seeks to adapt our environment to ourselves. I'm not comfortable, I'll make more money and move to another house. 
Um, I'll try and get a partner that suits me. I'm trying to uh, try and get a bunch of friends that I can socialize with. Um, I uh, I want a shed to work on. I'll I'll make a shed or I'll buy I'll make more money. You know, we're trying to create an environment for us to flourish. Okay. When we're kids, we don't have any control of our environment or very little depending on how repressive our parents are. And what happens then is we start to adapt ourselves to our environment instead of adapt the environment to ourselves. Because the fetus doesn't know if it's going to be born here uh, in Scotland, there in Australia, in Saudi Arabia, in China. So it's got that if I was born in Saudi Arabia, I'd be having this conversation in Arabic, right? Because uh, I'd, I'd adapt to my environment. So when we can um, adapt to our environment, we adapt ourselves to an environment and we retain all sorts of defenses and structures and personality um, traits or adaptations, I call the, uh, which we could call, you know, our inner state, you know, yeah. our inner state, right? I see what you did um, there. <laughs> right. Um, so, no, because I think this is all, uh, uh, I don't think that the use of language is, I think that our use of language is deliberate and there's reasons why certain words have several meanings and certain resonances and get applied to certain things. Mm. Uh, we, we could talk about that for, for ages because words are a psychological phenomenon. The mind, um, the on the most fundamental level is free pre-verbal it's it, it works in pictures and notions and when and symbols so when you dream like a symbol in a dream can have so many meanings so uh, so i think yeah yeah i'm 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 being clever with words and saying you you can call this your state, but but I don't think it's a coincidence that we call states states. We call governments states either. Um, so basically, you ad what was adapted to, to an environment where you didn't have much control might not necessarily be adapted to yourself as an adult. So what served you as a child doesn't serve you as an adult. If you're too assertive as a child, people might call you fresh or cheeky. They punish you for, for being self-confident. Um, whereas when you're an adult, you can't get ahead of the work uh, uh, the, uh, in the workplace. You, you're too shy to ask for a promotion. You're too shy to ask the girl that you always talk to at the water cooler out and, you know, whatever, because you, you've inherited a bunch of stuff from being a little kid that no longer serves you as a um, as an adult, um, you're, you're adapting to your envir environment instead of an environment you're no longer in, instead of looking around and adapting your environment to yourself. And I guess that's where I'm coming from, where I, the, the, the fundamental um, practice that I'm in is helping people loosen up their personalities a bit and get out of the solid state into the more fluid, free, being able to make the decisions that they want, being able to act on their desires without holding themselves back, and their desire to create something, to do something important with their life, and, and what have you. So, um, and I, I can, guess I that's I can personally it. vouch for your, your methods as well. Right. I've, I've come to you for counselling in the past. That was how we first met. That's I don't come right. to you for counselling anymore, but it was very, very helpful at a, at a, a difficult time in my life. So uh, <laughs> anyone who is uh, interested in, in Anthony's services should get in touch with him. Where's the best place people can reach you for that service? 
Yeah, you can email me anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com or send me a Facebook message. That might be the easiest way. Uh, I stay reasonably on top of Facebook messages and that's how a lot of people who find me through my shows um, tend to connect with me. Excellent. So you can just well, uh, search for Anthony Samaroff, copy-paste the name from the title of this video into Facebook. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's bring it back to drugs and let's talk about what, how, uh, how is the use of drugs. And maybe um, I'd be interested in hearing from you on this, Sven, because uh, I think you know, you've, you've got some experiences to, to share from that world of dance music festivals and that sort of thing. That's a subculture you've been part of. What, how is it that taking drugs, um, you know, like ecstasy, which is a popular party drug, um, how is that adapting the environment you know, to better suit the emotional needs of people or how is that adapting the self to the environment how what's the interplay there between self and environment that causes people to take drugs so prevalently at these festivals well i mean basically they feel good man you know it's like that thing about um uh, technically, the, the only two things you enjoy are serotonin and dopamine, right? And, you know, all these amphetamines, all they're doing is, you know, flooding the brain with the happy hor- hormones that are already there. So, you know, I, I heard Jordan Peterson actually say recently, the question is not why uh, why do people take drugs? The question is why don't people take drugs you know like all the time um, that's, that's, all the that's time. right you know yeah. if you have a if you have a button that you can just smash and get free dopamine like why would you not be smashing that button so but it, it's not then, it's not just a button you can repeatedly hit though there are diminishing returns and yeah. there are consequences oh absolutely yeah but yeah. you can you'd be surprised yeah. how how far you can push it before you hit rock bottom you know and lots of people do mm. um but yeah and, yeah. and other other than that, like the way I, I know for me, at least I'm a highly disagreeable person and I heard all my life, you know, don't do drugs and drugs are evil coming from this, you know, authoritarian monolith. And, you know, I, I always doubted what, you know, people in authority said. So right. making making things illegal, like, you know, the forbidden fruit tastes best. So it's, sure. it's unsurprising people uh, interested in these things. Mm. Yeah, and there's so much to say about drugs. I mean, that idea of just smashing the dopamine button over and over again. Um, what, they used to think that, um, that that drugs were more addictive than they are because they did an experiment with mice where they had or rats where they had a lever and they could push a, um, they could push the lever and get some. I don't know if it was coke or or um, morphine or something, and. Um, in the, the original experiments, the, they just do it over and over again. So they're like, whoa, I mean, they're getting really addicted to this stuff. Um, but it turns out that in the, the original experiments, they were just in really tiny cages and they didn't have anything to do and they were bored as hell. When they actually put them in big environments where uh, there was other animals to play with, there was wheels, there was food, there was, there was all sorts to do, they, you know, they, they weren't keen on it. They weren't. They, you know, they might take it occasionally, but they weren't. They weren't keen to go. And I think that's um, a, there's there's Gabor Mate in the realm of the hungry ghost. That's a famous text, and you can see mm. some of his. I agree with you that a lot of drug taking is basically self medication, and um, I mean a, a traumatic childhood can really screw up your serotonin levels. And what you find is that people. Um, who are really susceptible to drug addiction feel about normal 
when they take drugs. They maybe feel normal for the first time in their lives. I mean, I've had some experiments and thought, wow, you know, geez, is this what I'd be like? They say on ecstasy, I can't take drugs recreationally because I'm just so introspective that even if I was out at a a rave with you, Sven, as soon as I popped a pill, you know, six months, six, um, uh, two hours later, I'd be like, I've got to go home, man. I've just got to mm. go home and have to journal. I've got to tidy my room. Let me tell you this, lo- man. Yeah. Let me tell you this. Like, I'm, I've, I've told James often that I'm, I become an outcast in any group that I'm in. And while at raves, I used to bring my journal and I'd be sitting on the stage at the yeah. front and yeah. <laughs> writing in it. So I, I can totally to. relate to that. That's yeah. such a funny position to take too, Sven, because yeah. you're, you're not just going home to journal like Anthony would. You're sitting at the front of the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Journaling well, with an audience. I've still got those journals. I'll, I'll show them to you. They're actually like drips, drips of sweat that are on there. That I'm sure if you um, did some analysis on, on the sweat, you would find some of those uh, amphetamine m- uh, molecules in there. But, Depends yeah. on the half-life, I suppose. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be there licking in my journal. Yeah, I mean, the, um, <laughs> I, I made the joke. I, I, I used to say that to people before Jordan Peterson emerged, like, oh, I can't take an ecstasy out, man. I'd have to go home and tidy my room, you know, uh, which is which is really ironic now that I think about it. But actually, there's this view that if people take drugs, they're going to get addicted to it. And um, I was surprised to find that it tends to be about 10% of people that are susceptible to addiction for any particular chemical. And um, like we have a perception that if we kidnapped James Sven and we uh, shot him up with smack for two weeks, that he'd necessarily leave being an addict. That's not the case. You know, just because certain people have um, a a predilection, they're, they're, they they have a susceptibility to addiction to certain chemicals, and yeah, that might be due to trauma, or, or there probably is a degree of genetic factors. But probably even so, with genetic factors, without the trauma, there's you know there's nothing to pull the trigger. So the epigenetic factors a, in that case. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a. I'm lucky that I don't have an addicted personality, but I'm probably addictive in other ways. Like I've got little obsessive compulsive disorders. Like if I peck under one nail, I feel like the desperate urge to peck under the other ones. You know, and things like that. People have addictive behaviors that they don't realize are addictive. It's just that substance use is one of the most prominent ones. And coming back to um, your point on uh, the drug war failing. Uh, well, oh, we don't like that. Let's just ban it. You know, it's the the lowest level of mentality, the lowest level of thinking. What well, if it, people, some of the best pharmacists in the world work in Amsterdam for the illegal drugs industry because that's where the money is. So what you've just basically mix, missed out on is fifty or sixty years of comp, of corporations. They really don't like killing their customers, do you know what I mean? Um, Working to make drugs safer and safer with the least amount of side effects um, because that's what they'd be researching to do. Not to mention the psychotherapeutic uh, angle, which I'm sure you've heard of, and now they're doing trials on psilocybin from mushrooms. Yeah, before ecstasy got banned, it was used in helping people overcome um, childhood trauma it was used in couples counselling, because um, obviously it, 
connects you to the heart space and mm. couples were able to hear things that they weren't maybe able to hear without the aid of the um, chemical. There was like an old folks home where they'd give people ecstasy maybe once every six months, MDMA, and that would perk them up for about six months. They'd get an afterglow from it. So um, the, the, the therapists that were using it um, were very encouraged and um, we're going back to the 60s or so now and they were they were fearful that it would get banned and of course it did so um yeah uh, we we've lost out on the possibility of using substance as uh, so psychotherapeutically and 60 years of research into how that might be done effectively and safely so on the on the subject of prohibition, uh, there's an interesting article in news.com.au um, on on this exact event, the DEFCON one event and the deaths. Um, so the premier Gladys uh, Berejiklian, I think that's how you pronounce the name, but I like to call her um, Berry Buried Jekyll Killjoy. We'll go with that. <laughs> um, but uh, this article reads that doctors have slammed the New South Wales government head, uh, government's head-in-the-sand approach to drugs at music festivals after two people died. And uh, Dr Nicole Lee works in drug and alcohol policy and said that pill testing had to be in place to keep young people who would experiment with drugs regardless safe. And she said, quote, these kids died because of prohibition. More prohibition is not going to solve this problem. Young people will experiment and we may or may not agree with those choices, but they shouldn't die because of them. Dr. Lee uh, wrote that on social media. She's sounding so, dangerously yeah. like a libertarian. I mean. Well, so those, those pill testing kits, they do work. And um, you could just buy them from like the record stores. And this was like, you know, 15 years ago when I was in the rail, nearly 20 years ago when I was in the rave scene in Brisbane. And, you know, that cost like $5. And you, they were just a little bit of uh, powder that, um, sorry, they were a little bit of liquid that you would scrape a little bit of your pill off and it would change color. And if it was black, you knew it was actually MDMA and, you know, it would turn different colors to indicate that there was, you know, different like filler substances in there. So that was really safe to do. And I've, I've also been to um, Boom Festival in Portugal, which is 50,000 people. It's like um, a week long. It's like in the middle of nowhere around this massive lake sort of thing. And Portugal did, uh, you know, I think it's close to 10 years ago now that they decriminalized um, drugs basically and they have implemented all these harm minimization protocols and at this at this festival remember 50,000 people um, they just had you know a massive stall with a huge line and people were just lining up with their bags of drugs and you know it was all legit you would go there and test it there was no questions asked and um, incidentally DEFCON I, I think it was just 10,000 Oh, no, it's 30,000 people. That's actually, okay. you know, so two from 30,000. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that year of um, of Boom Festival, you know, amongst 50,000 people, there were no deaths there. And, I mean, this place was loose as, you know, we were camped out there and, you know, just a, 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 not too far from us, there were a couple of Israeli dudes with some bouncers set up. And that was like, come here and buy your drugs. You know, it was just mm. total free market. Like, it was just so open. It was quite quite eye-opening frankly but um yeah there's ways to to do this and well, the other thing i wanted ties to in well from up... a question from one of our viewers who uh, who wrote um how do people in the eu manage to have music events and drugs and not kill themselves and there's one answer for you is that there's yeah. legitimate ways to uh that was uh, charlie brown by the way hey charlie thanks for joining us tonight you're a good man charlie brown <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is I saw, like reading some of the articles around from this, that um, 43% of Australians um, admit to using illicit substances. And, well, you know, it might even be higher than that in the people that didn't say so. so. That and the quote definitely from, be under-reporting on that. Right. The quote from the Premier that I saw, the Premier of New South Wales, is that um, there is no... Yeah, Anyone who advocates pill testing is giving the green light to drugs. There is no such thing as a safe drug, and unfortunately, when young people think that there is, it has tragic consequences. Now, this is Says always... someone who's never ever taken a pharmaceutical in their life. I'm sure, <laughs> yeah, you know, never yeah, taken exactly. anything for a yeah, headache. Yeah, it's, it's a real head in mean? the sand. It's just such a load of bullshit. Although on, my on that exact topic, sorry to butt in, Sven, you carry on in a sec, mm. but um. One of our viewers, Naughty Design, is pushing back oh, yeah. a bit nice. on YouTube and uh, and just said the fact that there is a need to test their stash is telling. Do I have to test my paracetamol at home? Exactly. Um, uh, and so, good point. Really good point. Um, mm. You know, but it's it could be that if you know, um, yeah, like if we manage the pharmaceutical, uh, if we manage the 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 drug, the party drug industry in the way that we manage the pharmaceutical industry. Sure. Um, or in a similar way, or in, even in a more free market way, um, there are other possibilities other than just banning events. So, Sven, you carry on. Um, what was it? No, I just <laughs> I derailed you, man. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So what? So um, what are yeah, what mean... are some of the possibilities that um, have not yet been tried, or that are being tried in the in the radically um, libertarian states you know on drugs anyway there are some states in the world that are much more free market oriented on drugs i think sure. portugal as you mentioned and places like that what are they doing other than other than having testing facilities what are the what are the manufacturers doing uh, I don't have any facts on that. I know in some places, safe for heroin. Now, this is obviously a state program, but um, so it wouldn't be my first choice of way of doing it, but it's still better than what states that ban it do, which is they just had places for people who were um, heroin addicts to go and shoot up, and they provided the kit, um, they provided the drug. And they go, well, what's the government doing giving people free drugs? Well, the thing is, a large percentage of them gave up after a while because the government drugs were so bad <laughs> it was because part of what was driving their addiction was uncertainty over where whether they'd get the next where or how or when they'd get the next hit so they're always anxious like oh am i going to get this or am i not going to get it? like okay well i've got a chance to take it now so i'm going to take it now because i don't mm. know if i'll have it later mm. once they knew that they could reliably shoot up they didn't have that anxiety. They might do that for a while. And then, you know, I can't remember the percentage, but it's just a Google away. Like, this isn't something obscure. It's a well-known thing. I think it was. Uh, I, ca I can't remember where it was, actually. Um, I think there's a... And, like, I'm not really a huge advocate of recreational drug use. I mean, people go on about um, cannabis a lot. And, yeah, it's like... Grow up, do you know what I mean? Ca cannabis is everywhere. Like, um, you know, people are so square about it. You mentioned before Elon Musk took a talk of a joint on Joe Rogan podcast. Seriously, there's like 
thousands of people dying in Yemen right now mm. Uh, mm. due to the U.S. Uh, but all you've got to talk about is like how square are you? And I also, by the same token, I really hate it when I meet folks and they're all like, "Yeah, I'm going back home to smoke a joint," and they think they're so fucking cool because they smoke a joint. Do you know what? No one gives a shit, right? No one gives a shit. That I it's don't think you're more cool. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't think that you're cool for smoking a joint. And I meet people like that. Well, I used to. But in Glasgow all the time, it's like, dude, yeah. I've seen people smoking a joint since I was 16 years old. It was, edgy, nothing new. It was edgy but, in 1952, but it's not now. <laughs> right. But, but also, I don't think that I don't think that dope is a. I don't think that marijuana is like an evolving drug for people. I think it's a really bad habit. I think it makes people completely comfortable with being bored and doing nothing with their life. And I've seen so many people in my 20s who had creative aspirations right and the fact that they weren't doing anything with them tortured them so they just smoke a joint and then they'd feel comfortable walking watching movies instead i had a friend who says that smoking smoking marijuana ruined their life basically because you know when they first started smoking it they got so creative Mm. but before that they used to they used to write and they used to draw even when they weren't high. But after a while, they only did it when they're high. So there's all this stuff about uh, marijuana being harmless is absolute horseshit. And it's not the same dope that you used to get in the sixties. It's all genetically modified and selectively bred to be stronger. But I'm not willing to stop anyone, even though I even though I think it's kind of lame smoking it. Like it's okay. Like obviously at a party or, you know, once in a while, but people who smoke it every day, I think it's lame. I think it's lame as fuck. But I'm not willing to stop you from doing it. And I'd rather it was legal so that people who had these problems didn't have to go to um, some, like, crappy government, uh, oh, drug counselling. They offer them really crap drug counselling that barely had. But it would be known, you know, it would be a bigger thing um, and, you know, people who had these problems, because it was in the open, things would um, emerge to help people who thought they had that kind of problem. And because it wasn't cool and edgy, uh, because it was illegal, like, I mean, sorry, I could talk about this stuff for ages, but like mental health services, I've had so many people come to me that have gone through the official channels for mental health services and basically been put off counselling or psychotherapy. Um but, you know, if not for the state um, basically propping people up who make bad, who can't get their shit together to the welfare state and things like that, there would be more people going to get help. And with more people going to get help, there would be more of a... Because they need to. Do you know what I mean? It's not like the gov- government's going to go, well, you're a loser, so we're going to give you tons of welfare or a free flat or something like that. It'd be like, you kind of need to... To, to get off your ass and get your shit together on a free market. So more people would look for help and there would be better help available. I feel like what we've got is a culture um, that uh, keeps people stuck and is willing to pay people to be stuck at the expense of people who are actually doing productive work on behalf of others. But of course, I'm just a heartless neoliberal for saying that. So let's talk about the, the market forces that are Mike involved dropped. in in the drug trade because... Um, if we were in a free market environment where we were looking to the market for our solutions instead of, you know, punitive measures from, from the state to prevent drug deaths, such as what happened at DEFCON 1, 
you know, the thing is, I had a I had an ins a, a thought recently about um, counselors such as yourself. Is that it's um, if you are taking money from people who are unwell, you know, who are, who need mm -hmm. who need help, right? Your financial incentive is for them to stay unwell. So it takes a great deal of integrity um, to to choose at the outset to go. I want to make I want to um, help you and make myself obsolete as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, so that you get the maximal benefit of my services, and 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 then you're trusting that the good quality of service you provide will lead to other customers. But there sure. are, there are people out there like some very sick psychologists out there who sure. who keep their patients addicted to them and who, who want them to keep coming back more and more and more. And you could compare that to the drug dealers that we see today. Who, okay. Who, who don't want their customers to die because then they'd lose their, their stream of income. But it would be better, finan the financial incentive is there for them to want their customers to be taking drugs every single day. I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that, that concern that people have that leads them to look to the okay. state to punish drug dealers? And why aren't they punishing psychologists and counsellors? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I, I doubt that there's that many psycho uh, um, psychotherapists that are consciously trying to keep their patients um, poor uh, so in, in a poor condition. So they keep. There's just a ton of fucking shit psychotherapists. I mean, um, I, I think. Sorry, I'm going to get into trouble for saying one of these things online one of these days. Do you know that? Just but don't nowadays, bang names uh, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, no, nowadays, nowadays, a controversy does wonders for your online profile. So maybe that'll be a good thing. But. Um, Right, okay. Yeah, but this is kind of coming back to the homo economicus, which is the theory in economics that people are like rational economical economic animals and always make uh, decisions on their whatever their self-interest. And that's blatantly not true. I mean, people go into the military, people have kids, which is a massive drain on resources. And the stats say um, you're not likely to be more happy having kids than love, but that's probably just because you're all crap parents. Uh, not you, not you guys, but most people are. So they don't oh, look, enjoy. You know, as as a parent, I, I have my moments, you know, where it's like it's yeah, really sure. fucking hard, you know, to be a parent. Yeah, it's, it's not no easy. Um, but but you know, the net benefits are, are absolutely there uh, for for my. Yeah, parents. I mean. Freaking! I wish I had my shit together when I was in my early twenties, so I could be married with kids by now. Like, why the fuck do you think I became a psychologist, man? I had to start. the The first patient was me, right? Mm. So, it's it's an interesting thing. But no, of course, like my job satisfaction is seeing people improve. I mean, I I one of the reasons why I went into personal development is because I saw a need for it. Like, I started teaching piano um, because I, f well, because I thought it would be good money on the side while I was going to uni, but I saw I was good at it. I was better at explaining yeah, music concepts than any of my piano tutors were. So I was like, okay, I'm, I see a need for that. Same with going into psychotherapy. Like I, I, my parents were terrible communicators. I got into communication skills. I started teaching about that. I saw the benefits in my life. I wanted to teach it. I saw a need for it. I never thought I'd write about economics. Like what the hell? You know, when I was in school and uh, primary school and the teacher said, Anthony, what do you 
want to be when you grow up. I didn't go, I want to be a um, counselor and an economist, miss. Uh, no, do you know, do you know what? It, it never entered my mind. But when I started reading the um, books that libertarians were recommending on economics, I saw a gap in the market for explaining these concepts and the way that I think would have converted me when I was a lefty. So I started writing to the left. And that's how I got. So most of what I've done in my life has been, I mean, in term professionally, has been in terms of what what I see is necessary. And this is kind of kind of coming back to the self satisfaction. Like I think if you're, it's also market facing, and we can bring it back to UBI and this idea of automation. See if oh, automation is going to kill jobs. See if you get really good at anything, or even not even really good if you just get good at anything you'll start seeing tons of things that other people aren't doing that you see a need for it's only people who are unskilled who think that we're going to start running out of job I, I know i've gone like way way on a tangent but i, I don't know man i've no, just got this more than uh, one so, man <laughs> so that's, that's cool man Association and, and to, machine it's like uh, to bring it back uh, we're talking about so the what, incentives drug of your work and you're wanting people to you're well, wanting to drug... see people well. That's your incentive, right? Yeah. Over over the okay, financial so what's benefits the, what's of the, the money. What's the incentive of a drug? What so? What's the incentive of a drug um, dealer? Well, they want to offer you a good product. People usually get dodgy crap when they the, when they meet someone randomly. Like people who know. Like I've I've not taken much many drugs. I've taken some psychedelics, and I, you know I'm probably taken next to see like a dozen times in my life. Um, that might sound a lot to someone who's not taken it, but... Um, That's 100% Doesn't more than sound like a lot to me. We've got the whole spectrum bit, here. Maybe something a bit north of that. Maybe something a bit north of that. Um, not not t- maybe, maybe at most twice that. Probably less than that. Dude, so, it's okay. You're uh, already way more edgy than me. Right. You're way more edgy than you. And, I, I and not as edgy as... Not as edgy as me. No, I've never had ecstasy. So that's the thing. It's like... but. I've been around circles where, you know, I mean, West End of Glasgow, where it was 10 years ago, where it was normal. And it was, it's like the people, people knew that guy or a couple of guys who could get you stuff. And I remember people saying, yeah, that dude's like, uh, uh, that, that dude, one of them in particular, yeah, he's really solid, you know, um, if he gets a bad batch, he'll say, like, I've got these, he's, if someone's like, have you got any pills, he'd go, yeah, I've got these ones, but they're not that great, or, you know, or or I've got these blue ones, they're really, really amazing, like, I didn't hear him say it, but I heard through the great, I was at a party once, one of my first experiences taking um XZ or MDMA or whatever it was and same guy you know uh, Anthony your jaw's going you've got to drink some water and I was like what he's like yeah yeah see when that happens like that that means you're dehydrated so you know people at least get a reputation for being a go-to guy and so you don't want to kill your customers and uh, you want your customers to have a good experience so that they come back to you rather than someone else I mean um, and of course, if these guys were uh, uh, criminals in the in the eyes of the state and society, then it's much harder to find them, much harder to contact them, much harder to deal with them, and much harder to trust them because they're they're um, underground. You know, whereas if, if these if if it were sure. a free market, we would have um, these 
upstanding dealers who take it seriously, who want it to be safe. They want their customers to have a good time and, and the safest time possible. Yeah, and they'll be, they'll be honest and they'll price their products according to their quality and they won't sell products that they know to be dangerous or deadly. I mean, there's, there's always risk and danger because everyone has a different sure. response. But there's risk in everything and that's what people forget. It's like there's, there's statistically, there's huge risk in getting in your car every day. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. But we we mitigate these risks because we want the freedom to go to the shops. We want the freedom to go out into the world and, and move around quickly and travel and see places. So we take risks all the time. Why are drugs classed as a different kind of risk? Well, they're so easy to demonize. And the, the thing about the premier, she has to do this because there's parents out there whose kids. No, no, she has to she has to say the things that she said oh, yeah. and you know, say we're gonna ban the festival and all that. She has to be seen. Like it's that thing like heads, heads must heads must roll. You know, if there's if there's families out there who've lost, you know, teenage kids to this, you know, <clears> like something needs to be seen to be done. But Because I mean, because cr- otherwise we'll look at the state and we'll go, actually you guys are causing this problem with your with your Yeah, and the way the way they cause it is by demonizing it. And so as as Anthony mentioned earlier, like um it drives it underground and people are too scared to ask questions about it. You know, you, you can't, you know, if, for everything else, we have our peers around us and we can ask people, you know, is this safe? And, um, and you just don't have that in this, in this industry for, for what it's worth. But that what's really tragic is that the information is out there. I remember again, like, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, there was websites where it was like rate my pill.com. Um, it was blue light. Yeah, and absolutely. That's still that's still up, and people, you know, they would they would take their pills, they would take a photo of it, they would rate it, um, and that's like the free market bringing a solution to it. Mm. It just shows that people have the desire to experiment safely. They're not fucking idiots, right? Even in this atmosphere, the state of perverse, uh, uh, this oppressive, busybody, like I'm being your brother's keeper. James, is like uh, built in to the people's view of what society should be like and people still create things like the dark web, break my pill um, people want uh, good information before the internet I mean, I've had people say oh yeah, I've got this, I don't know the name of the chemicals, there's so many but they, they, they refer, they're like, I'm going to go online and read up on it and find out and you know, this don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, as treating people like, you know, they're idiots that need to be hypnotized. Mm. They should be saying, you know, referring people to reliable information. I remember an ex-junkie coming to our school to tell, you know, they got him in to give us a talk and someone else one time came from the police and talked about all the drugs and how bad they were. And we don't take these people seriously. Kids are not fucking stupid. Bring them someone in that respects them and treats them like human beings and goes, so people like taking this drug for these reasons and these are the effects that people are likely to have. These are the risks that they have. And, you know, it would be so much better for them to say, if you uh, uh, we don't advise taking it, if you're going to take it, make sure you take it responsibly. If you can't tell your parents, then you, you should tell your parents, but if you can't tell your parents, blah, 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 go to a friend's house, find, find a reliable adult. So, you know, because 
kids might actually listen to that, you know, because yeah. it's not patronizing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess we, I think... we should talk about altered states in general and the way people seek them out. Is that people are can be a bit naive if they say that drugs are the only way in which human oh. beings seek altered states. We seek altered states all the time with everything we do. Coffee. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Look at the size of the massive thermos of tea that I uh, prepared for this show because mm. I am, because Scotland is start, still part of Great Britain. I'm still British and I, I need my caffeine fix in the morning. You know, I need my cup of tea. That's not caffeine, mate. you got to have coffee. <laughs> uh, well, apparently a strong, well, anyway, go on. <laughs> I, um, I, I look yeah. at it, you know, um, better living through chemistry, right? Um, right. But I think, Things, things are changing. And like I said, it's been 20 years, you know, when I first started all my, uh, let's say, um, psychonautic experiencing. And, you know, I listened to so much Terence McKenna, who was the, you know, the zealot for mushrooms. And yeah. now, like, like you mentioned, the psilocybin experiments, and they use it mm. for smoking cessa- cessation. And there was like, you know, a 25 year just total ban on all research on yeah. things like DMT and MDMA and psilocybin and now it's coming back um, you mentioned Gabor Mate before and that book yeah. in the realm of hungry ghosts that is like the go-to book for anyone who's you know struggled with drug use uh, I would recommend that as well but he's been involved in these ayahuasca experiments and it's, yeah it's sort of very it's very gratifying to me who um, you know like I said 15 years ago this was sort of my world and it seems like very very slowly the science is sort of catching up and they're using these things um, in like proper psychological applications and in those settings in controlled settings um, where it can be talked about as a legitimate thing and not you know at some dingy warehouse or out at a bush doof it's you know I think there's there's something in them and we we don't know um the power of psychedelics yet and i think we're still going to find that out in the future yeah and you know every psychedelic or every chemical that has a psychological potential for benefiting people whether it's psilocybin treating depression or ayahuasca treating drug addiction um will not be suitable for everyone. I mean, I did a bunch, I did have ayahuasca a bunch of times in my 20s because frankly, I was at um, a dead end. I was really down and I was looking for something. So, did to you do the full and, ceremonies, like the, the prolonged yeah. ayahuasca experience? Yeah, wow. Yeah, um, my, my biggest one was um, I went for a week and I think we did a, um, five or six days out, out of the week uh, on a retreat. Um, but do you know what? It's It, uh, it wasn't the it wasn't the medicine for me. They call it the medicine. I had a couple of good experiences, but I, at the time, um, I was very anxiety prone. And most times I took it, I just got um, really uh, paranoid and couldn't get out of my head. Some of the most mm. terrifying experiences in my life. But I, I um, also experimented. I imbibed uh, um, a hallucinogenic cactus. I, I consistently found that to get me practical like i would think on the cactus i would think of things to say to people that was having um interpersonal conflicts with um or notice things that i didn't notice when i was sober and then when i was when when i came down i went and put what i learned on the cactus into practice and hey presto got much better results in my life reliably i found i found it helpful i took a ton of mushrooms when i was about 18 and i've barely taken them since then and i loved it um i i found 
what I found was the attention to detail that um, I noticed things that I didn't that I didn't notice. And then, um, but what what put me off is about a year or two later. The thing is with mushrooms, you build up a tolerance really quickly, but if you don't take them. Uh, the tolerance goes. So about a year after that, um, I was at some Halloween party and someone gave me some mushrooms and I thought, oh yeah, that's that's fine for me. Not realising um, the last time I took them, I'd built up a tolerance and I had an absolutely terrifying experience. Um, and so the, I'm just putting that out there to tell you that it ain't all, you know, you're not necessarily going to have a good time on these things. Ayahuasca, you certainly cannot take recreationally because there's nothing... No recreational about having to puke your guts up into a bucket do you know what i mean hmm. um so so, so I, the I'll, thing is sorry go on yeah no people need to people need open access to information we need experts so that we can figure out what might help people if because there's nothing is going to hold this back for two reasons people hate suffering and um, people are looking for ways to to feel better. To they're, they're, and, and if you get down enough, you will leave no stone unturned. I mean, when I first went to do ayahuasca, I felt like I was at a dead end. You know, I needed to try something, which is what which is what drove me there. And I'm not the only one who went there with with, with that in mind. And I saw it help tons of people. Um, actually, I saw people come back to retreats a couple of years ago. Um, they'd lost tons of weight, or they'd reformed their lives this way, that way, and the other. And it was the thing that gave them the kick in the ass. Mm. Now, I'd like to um, share a little drug horror story, just to sort of put something on the flip side. Um, you know, because you're speaking of the bad experiences that can happen, and I guess this is for me the reason why. Um, you know, I've tried marijuana many times, but um, but the reason why I've never taken party drugs like MDMA or ecstasy was that in my second year of university, um, I had a, a friend who was a really talented um, and absolutely hilarious guy, and he was a great keyboardist and producer, and we were we were doing some work together, and he was a it was he was a loose guy, you know, he was a real party animal, and he would um he was known and uh, openly talked about how much he took ecstasy on the weekends and that sort of thing. Well, for some reason, and I guess we could explore the reasons why why kids do this, for some reason, he and some of his mates decided to try and cook up a batch of their own ecstasy. And they, oh. they, they botched it badly. And, and he um, went into a coma um, for several months. He, and he became epileptic, severely epileptic, from, from this, this one dose of this bad batch that he made. Yeah. And um, and the most tragic part of it was he was a he was an aspiring and very talented musician, but when he came out of the coma, um, he had brain damage and the epilepsy was triggered by music, so he could not listen to oh, or play music so without having seizures. Now they they um, they cared for him and they worked on his his medication for a very long time to try to find a balance, and he reached this point where he was able to listen to music again. And things were looking good. And our program convener at the university came to me and he said, look, Daniel's getting better and he'd like to come in for a day in the studio. I know you worked with him. I know you got along well. Would you, you know, he'll have a handler there too, but would you mind doing a session with him to ease him back into music and just keep your expectations really low? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get him in. And we booked in the day. And then like a few days before the day he was supposed to come back in, he had a massive seizure and died. Oh. And that was it. 
That so sad, James. So for I'm me, sorry. I just went, I'm never going to touch ecstasy because I can't right. trust that what I'm putting in my stomach is going to not kill me like it killed Dan. Right. So right, and that's 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 the point though. Like, what they had was not ecstasy. It wasn't it wasn't pure MDMA. Who knows yeah. what they had? You yeah, know? It was, yes, it was, but it was also, just a bad why would they be cooking up? Why would they be cooking up their own stuff? Yeah. if they could get an ecstasy as reliably as they could get a paracetamol. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and what it was, I suppose, so I, I would I would surmise that um, they cooked it up because. It, they were finding it difficult as as regular users. They were finding it difficult to find stuff that was you know strong enough for their tolerance that right. was going to give them enough of a you know maybe they just got some bad advice. But the point is that the information um, wasn't reliably available at that time. Yeah. Um, and the, the the good quality drugs weren't reliably reliably available. There weren't measures in place to properly check what they're doing. Of course, there was just you know reckless youth as well is is a factor here. Yeah, I know. Uh, and that's when I think, like, see if you can't go a weekend without it, then mm. you should be seeing There's other, a psychologist, yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He was because a troubled, that, troubled that, guy. Definitely. I mean, why would you be doing it all the time? Like, unless you were troubled. Mm. I had a difficult, you know, I I had a difficult time this year, um, the beginning of this year, and um, a friend of mine had some, and I got some to take on my own for introspective purposes to take as, um, to get me a different perspective on the difficulties I was trying. I just took it in my house and journaled, you know, I stayed up the night, figured out what I was going to, um, you know, that I think that's, you know, kind of like a responsible use of a substance. It's like, I'm going through a hard time. I'm trying to figure out my own, maybe I'll get a different angle. But if you're doing this like all the time, it, that means you're, native state the way that you are in day-to-day life is not comfortable for you and i don't think that our society is really having sympathy for this i would never hear someone on the news say well you know if people are smoking marijuana every day or if people are taking ecstasy every weekend clearly their native feeling i mean we used to know a guy he he, he was quite old uh, um significantly older than us um uh, when I first started going out clubbing, that uh, took speed very, very regular. And I was like, yeah, to be honest, when you get older, you take it to, like, make... And I, I love that when it, when people say you yeah, to yeah. normalize what they're doing. Yeah. He says, he doesn't say, well, I take it. You know, he didn't say, well, I take it to still have the same energy that I had when I, I was younger. You know, he generalized that. I, that kind of thing. It's like, um, yeah, people don't... That's the thing. It's it's quite sad because it shows you what you. If you take Gabor Mate's hypothesis seriously, that people are taking substances to self-medicate for low states and uh, to to not face their emotions, to not face the effects of their trauma, then it's quite sad taking an E in a, at a party and go, oh, I've got so many ideas. Like this week, I can do this, and I'll oh yeah, and I'll finish that song, and I'll write that and it's like yeah i can do it man i can fucking do it because i feel happy mm. and you know i've had that experience and i've had and then you know a couple of days later you come down and you've not got the energy and you think is that what was robbed from me see if i had had a really amazing childhood is that what i'd be like would i be that full of energy and out of limit and without limitations that i just um so yeah if you want more energy take up yoga but uh, what that's number one recommendation <laughs> It's not a fast-term solution like 
taking an ecstasy tablet, but over time it definitely increases the amount of energy you have. Yeah, I mean that's that's a sad thing. Like Timothy Leary talked about set and setting, right? And now all these drugs are being taken, like again, like I said, in these dingy warehouses or nightclubs. Like that's not the place for these things. They're not supposed to be um, like party drugs. It's like you said, it's for deep deep inner journeying. And I was really fortunate when I started partying that I met some people that were, you know, quite straight edge, and they were you know, they were just there for the music sort of thing. And so I had a good counter example, but even then I, I still did a lot of drugs, but I, I had that idea that this should be something that's treated with respect. And I always wanted to bring something back, um, into my mm, real life. Definitely. So it wasn't just, you know, something for the weekend, but, but yeah, so. Yeah. I mean, that's just not the case for, for most people that I've encountered in, in my life, uh, sure. particularly in my uni days who, who are doing ecstasy and, you know, um, on, it's a weekend party drug, party drug escapism pleasure only. And, and I think Sven, you have a very healthy attitude about it, um, in, in that regard. And, and that's, that's something that we need to be promoting is that like, as you said at the start, the war on drugs has been one of the most epic failures of any government policy um, we've ever seen. It's worse than ever. People are dying. And the only things that have ever um, pushed it in the right direction have been free market solutions. Mm. And so we need to be promoting a free market approach to drugs that also includes, um, you know, encouragement and almost a kind of chaplaincy, you know, of the spiritual journeying that that can be part of particularly psychedelics for people. That it's mm. not it's not merely escapism. It is it can be, and and a lot of people choose it to be. But it it ought to be, you know, the these chemicals, a lot of the psychedelics in particular, just occur in nature. They're just right there, ready to go. There's no laboratory diddling needed. They grow in the ground. This is part of God's design of the earth, and I believe that they have a function for human beings, and that's why we react to them in the ways that we do. And that's why so many amazing experiences happen for people and they learn so much <clears throat> about themselves. They learn so much about the spiritual realm. They learn, they have, as you said, Anthony, they have people like you have insights into your own, you know, specific problems in relationships, you know, that the answers that you can't find because you're, you're mired with doubts or whatever about conflicts, suddenly these answers can spring up from, you know, the, the spiritual fountainhead uh, during a psychedelic experience, there there is real value to be found in them if they're dealt with safely, and if people are guided by experienced psychonauts um, who have the right attitude and don't treat them flippantly. Right on. <laughs> so that's my recommendation. Have we smashed? <laughs> have we smashed this topic yet? Yeah. Oh man, we've smashed it. We've yeah. spent an hour on it. So. Um, yeah, like let's let's um, let's talk to people more about this, uh, particularly around the the issue of DEFCON one, because we've got this this state interve- intervention coming in, pointing the finger at all the wrong people, punishing all the wrong people, uh, and 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 as you said, Sven, uh, the state premier, she has to say this because she's got a virtue signal to distract people, uh, to seize people's fear and distract them from the fact that it is actually the state that is causing these deaths. It is prohibition. It is the current state of play in the war on drugs that is making it possible for people to die on such a large scale like this. So let's, you know, let's not let this one stand. Now, let's get back to universal basic income. We didn't, we didn't delve too far there. 
okay. I, I interviewed one of our senators just the other day, David Lionhelm, and I, I mentioned it to him. We were talking about welfare, um, welfareism, and you know the the problems that as libertarians, um, you know, we can see with with the welfare state. And and I said to him, what about universal basic income as a as a potentially viable alternative? And his answer was interesting because he started off with, well, it's a bit like communism. Um, it's good yeah. in theory, but in practice it doesn't work. Now, I take issue with the good in theory part. <laughs> the good in theory, yeah. <laughs> but uh, what, what were Me some too. of your findings um, that you've shared in your book? What were, were there any, in your investigation of the, the arguments for and against universal basic income, what was the most right. surprising thing that you discovered? The, the, the best argument in favour of universal basic income is that it would get rid of the bureaucracy and a whole ton of welfare programs and uh, theoretically and also <clears throat> in a in the in an ideal world you wouldn't have to um, have the state subsidizing people's dental care and, and health care and this and that and the other um, because they could because people could shop around. I mean, from a free market perspective, you could say, well, that's now affordable to people now because so, they've got universal basic income. So if we let them shop around, then they'll get the best service at the best price instead of the government paying for it, which degrades the value of everything. Well, that's like, nice in theory, but the, the truth is that most people don't actually believe that the free market produces... The, you know, like. People don't think, oh, if if the government stops subsidising dental care, uh, as they do here in the in the UK, and giving people free that that free, the price will go down and down over time. So, uh, so that's probably you can chuck that idea in the waste paper basket if you're a pro UBI um, libertarian. The other thing is, realistically, I don't think that's how it's going to pan out because what happens is. People say first, okay, you get a U even if you manage to abolish all the welfare programs and replace it with the UBI, then people would say, well, you know, I live in an expensive area. I should get a higher UBI. I'm a single mother. I should get a higher UBI. But and then you're back to the same bureaucratic mess. What was my surpri most surprising finding? That's a really hard question to answer because I I wasn't surprised by much. I just, um, I guess I come back to the idea that it amazes me the extent to which people think here's a problem. Whenever here people there's a problem, the gut reaction of people is to go, let's have more government to solve that, right? See, imagine if you were like a big fatty and you went to the doctor and um, he said, like, uh, here, take these, take these diet pills and take these pills to deal with the side effects of those. And if you feel queasy, come back and I'll give you something else. And you went, well, you know, what about my diet? You know, what about my addictive eating behavior and stuff like that? It's like, oh, forget about that, right? Why don't you get people, why don't you get people choosing healthy lifestyles first? And then if that doesn't work, then maybe give them some pharmaceuticals. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so the, the, the book aims to go, well, you know, right, let's put the, 
let's look at poverty. Like, why do we have so much? Why do we have poverty? Like, there's people who'll come on our libertarians. They'll say, uh, like my my the co-host of the Scottish Liberty podcast, Tam. Right, he grew up in uh, Central Africa, and he was like, "Do you know what? I'd love someone to go from to a village in Africa." And tell them about all the fucking poverty in Scotland, right? So <laughs> poverty is obviously so compared to what? But let's say from our from a average standpoint, right? I live, I'm living right now in a um, deprived area of Glasgow. The rent's nice and cheap. So, <laughs> um, but like, why is it when you look at the fact that between 1800s and 1965, the average number of hours worked went from, say, from 1870, that's when we have figures, the average number of hours worked made, went from maybe 62 to 42, or, you know, they've got exact figures in the book, right? Now, since then, we've got these computers, we've got laptops, we've got, um, we already had these labor-saving devices, the the March, so much stuff is cheap. I got a little notebook computer that's got a, you know, it's got a calculator, two cameras, uh, any of these, any of the devices on my little notebook, which I bought for a hundred and quid, maybe a hundred and twenty quid, would have cost any of the devices on it would have cost that ten years ago. When we can get so all of our music's free on YouTube. Sorry, James, but you know. You're you're gonna see a drop in your album sales. You get movie. when we've got so <laughs> I much. I don't think it can drop any up, further, bro. <laughs> I, I I give out I give out my books for free. Why? Mm. Because I know I I don't want to make money from the books, yeah. right? I'm I'm trying to raise my profile here. Download the book and send it to your lefty friends. You know where do they download I, it? I'm Tell not, us now, quickly. Yeah, where, where, uh, be yourself and love forward slash UBI. Uh, so my question is, given the advance in technology over the last 50 years, why has the number of uh, average number of hours worked not dropped by the same amount again? You know, you'd think that it would have. So I try and answer that question and um, by going into a whole bunch of ways that the state makes life more expensive. Um, and the, the way that I tie that into the UBI is that I say... Look at the figures. Look how much a UBI would cost. Even if we were just giving people the minimum amount, which I think in this country would be like eight grand or seven grand. I mean, that would be that would be enough to live. Um, it still costs more than total cut government spending right now, uh, significantly more. So you cannot afford a UBI right now. But if you do want a UBI, then here's a bunch of libertarian policies that will lower the, the cost of living to the point, like supposing your rent or mortgage cost a quarter of what it costs now, then it would be cheaper to provide people with a UBI because they're, they're, the cost of living would have gone down. So that's how I tie it in. I say, well, you know, I'm not for the UBI, but if you are for the UBI, you kind of need these policies. So I would really, I really need well, if you're if you're interested and your if your interest has been piqued, I really need all hands on deck for this book. Like 
download it and email it to all your lefty friends and the people that you know who are for UBI because this is speaking directly to the values of those people. It's about poverty reduction. It's about increasing the standard of living for everyone, starting with people at the bottom. And I think that it's, you know, what I was talking about before when I said most of the stuff I've done in my life professionally has been because I thought it was necessary. I think this book is a necessary addition to um, libertarian um, libertarianism, basically, to free market uh, economics, which is let's speak to the left on their own terms, on their values. They talk about poverty reduction. So he, here's a bunch of libertarian policies that would reduce poverty and raise everyone's standards of living. And you, I think it will equip you to debate and also if your friends are open and minded enough send them a copy I deal with the question of automation I deal with all sorts of objections to I, I deal with all sorts of arguments in favour of UBI and um, objections to the arguments against and um, it, I don't know Depending on your knowledge at home of economic study, I feel like you would come away from reading this book, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, feeling like you actually know about e quite a lot about economics and you can apply what you've learned from the book to other, to other issues. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I could say I'm proud of it. Yeah, it's, it. It's a good piece of writing. It probably only takes two hours to read, maybe Excellent. three. Excellent. So <clears throat> I'll just uh, I'll splash up a, uh, a picture of your website here, and, and if if you tell our audience the uh, the website again, nice and slowly, so they can uh, jump across there and grab a copy. It is free, which is most generous of you indeed. And here's the uh, yeah. I mean, you can website. buy it on Amazon Kindle, um, but you're you but if you um, if you if you want it if you want a Kindle edition, but I think the PDFs be, um, will be better. Um, if if you wanted to buy it just to give me money, you'd be better off PayPaling me three pounds rather than buying the book because then I'll get the whole whack. So, <laughs> um, excellent. Now, yeah. uh, what's with the uh, the Garden of Eden on the uh, cover? What what inspired you? Oh, that's that? uh, bring it bring it up, bring it up. Yeah, I've got it up. I've got it up. Oh, so people at home can see it. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, I I thought this would be a perfect like I was thinking of a cover, and there's there's a metaphor in my book where I say that redistributing wealth is like taking water from the deep end of the swimming pool and pouring it into the shallow end, but spilling some of it along the way. Um, because what happens, like you tax the rich people, you give the money to the poor people, they go out to the shops and spend it, it goes back to the rich people again, except for you've had to pay the government bureaucrats who di distributed it. And my, my brother said he liked that and I should do something with that for the cover. But um, as I was thinking about what to put on the cover, the idea of the Garden of Eden came to me and I love it because it's got kind of a double meaning, I think. Um, on one hand, you've got the idea of the prompt, like in the Garden of Eden, Adam didn't work because he had to. He worked because he wanted to. It was only after the fall that he um, was um, that God told him that he had to work. So all of their needs were provided for in the Garden of Eden. Mm. So it's got that emphasis 
of that it's got that on one level the idea of everything's provided for you in the garden of eden your needs are met you can work because you want to not because you have to and on the other hand it's obviously got the idea of the forbidden fruit oh is this a good idea we can give you this oh i'm going to give you free stuff yeah and adam and adam on the cover is going "Mm, i'm not sure if i should eat this or not and I saw there was another picture of the Garden Eden that I liked more. It was more beautiful. But what settled me on this one was this, the look on his face of, uh, I don't know if I should take this or not. Mm-hmm. And the idea is I've got some theories in the book of what might happen if we didn't institute an UBI. And my honest opinion is I think it would just make the money worthless because what makes money worthwhile is people have to sacrifice for it. If you just get the money, then people start um, trading in Bitcoin or dollars or euros instead because they're like, <clears throat> that's one thing that could happen. The other thing that could happen is the government could weaponize it and say, well, if you don't do this, then we're going to cut your UBI. Or, you know, well, there wouldn't be you, UBI could... anymore, though, if there's any threat to yeah, being exactly. taken away, right? Yeah, 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 but but it starts out as a UBI, and then the the government uses it to sanction people who mm-hmm. do things that they don't want them to do. Um, I can't think of anything more scary than everyone being dependent on the government for their their income. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. I, I say. You know, it sounds like a dystopian novel, but I'm all too fearful that that's what actually would happen. If, and there's a couple of other things that could go wrong as well. I mean. <clears throat> Obviously, the most obvious one from the con- conservative point of view, the classic argument against welfare is, well, you're um, incentivizing people not to work while punishing people who do work. And I do think that's part of it. Mm. But I, do, I think people would still do meaningful work, even if they, most people would, even if they were provided by with a UBI. But it might not be the most important work because it's not work that other people are paying. When you work, work a job, it's because you're providing value to someone else. Um, so that's the thing to consider. And <clears throat> fundamentally, the thing that I think's worst about it is it's non-discriminatory. So you might not be helping people. I mean, if you give someone who's addicted to video games a universal basic income, you might be making them worse, not better. Do you know mm, what I mean? Yep, yep. Although um, video games is a good example of the new economy because they're, they're one of the troubles with um, the whole state model um, is to say, you know, other people love to define what meaningful work is, you know, and they go, well, that's not meaningful to me. Video games, what a waste of time. I shouldn't be paying tax so that you can get a UBI to sit on your ass all day and play video games. But there's a whole new economy within the video game sector alone of people who are receiving value from other gamers by watching how sure. they play the game, by by learning, you know, hacks. And, and, and I mean, Sven knows a lot more about this than I do, but it, it blew me away when you showed me that video, Sven, of, of this guy who's just like an expert sharpshooter at this at this first-person shooter game. And how much money did he make in that one live stream from voluntary donations? I think it was like 40,000 US in about 40 minutes. $40,000 yeah. US in donations from I people who just like... I wish that I could make that. Guys, but that, and that's, live that's audience, fill your mm. fucking wallets out, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah. Like, James <laughs> and Sven are pouring their 
life's blood into the rational rise. This computer gamer can get forty grand, and you won't even pay. You won't even part with ten bucks for that beautiful face. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that opportunity for a segue to our um our support page. You can support us in a number of ways if you enjoy what we're doing at the Rational Rise. We have a Patreon account for now. We haven't said anything too controversial, so it's still there. It's www.patreon.com forward slash rational rise. We have a merch store, therationalrise.com forward slash merch, where you can get some of our t-shirts and designs that we've made, including this lovely I Am Dankula shirt and this uh, The Gender Gauge Wrap Is Real shirt. And um, also I've got my novel, The Ghost of Emily, which is about to be relaunched, and I've got another novel coming out next year, so you can hop over to the Ghosts of Men dot com to support and Sven I'm, I'm trusting that while I've been on this other scene you've been grabbing some of them stickers you got there and uh, I do. let's have a look uh, Sven also has his own project that we'd love to promote and plug tell us about it uh, Truth Tags uh, philosophical bumper stickers you can get them at truthtags.com.au nice. and um, yeah accepting cryptocurrency there and also we'll be at Liberty Fest next week and I'll have them all there as well Excellent. So yes, those are the ways that you can jump on the websites now to support us. And uh, of course, Anthony is a sucker for punishment, so he's giving his book away for free. And you can hop over to uh, beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI. But uh, as we're saying, we're, we're part of the new economy here. Like there's this intellectual dark web um, emerging as you know one of the many names for it. But this um, this world where people want to sit down and listen to a long-form conversation like this. They want to sit and listen to us blabbing on for two or three hours about, you know, intellectual, economic, social policies and all kinds of wacky ideas. This is a whole new economy and uh, it is meaningful work, right? But it doesn't feed people. And that's the thing. You know, right. there's, there's the sort of, there's the primary economy that is like we need to produce food and shelter these basic sort of physiological needs of humanity need to be covered and that is the essentials and we need to do what we can to protect those industries and that sector of the economy what we're doing is sort of infotainment it's it's um it's expendable in a crisis you know this economy will be the first to be uh sacrificed because it gives meaning to people's lives it helps people understand the world around them and helps us understand ourselves in doing it but it doesn't feed our babies you know? yeah that's a that's a luxury of civilization mm. you know people wonder why the older generation is not as into this stuff and it's like well they're kind of closer they're like 60 years closer to the people don't realize how much choice we have compared to all of history i mean it wasn't so long ago you lived where your parents lived you married who your parents married uh, so it said you'd marry <laughs> most mo most of your most of your labor belonged to your feudal lord like um slavery was normal so you might have been a slave um you know you, so uh, it's not just the freedom to vote i mean if you listen to hans herman hoppe that might have been actually generate step and um, creating universal suffrage but in our day-to-day -day lives we were confronted with a whole bunch of decisions that we didn't need to uh, we didn't need to make you know where to live who to marry what job to do um, and it's interesting because I was having this conversation a couple of nights ago and I was like we are one of the first generations throughout all of history people have been suffering their bondage like yeah handcuffs and stuff uh, jokes aside you know whether it was their bondage to their feudal lord or their or um whatever um 
the 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 needs the need to farm for 57 hours a week or more like whatever their lack of freedom their lack of uh, um, financial capability to choose what to do with their leisure time there's another thing we've got so much leisure time we've got wealth we've got so much choice over what to do with our leisure time so we don't know if we're wasting it or not we're maybe one of the first generations that suffers more for our freedom than our bondage isn't that interesting? Mm, mm. I think as a as a species, there's some uh, psychonomics for you. Um, yes. psych- psych- psychonomics doesn't actually mean a uh, mixture between psychology and economics, but I'm deciding that Sounds for the like purposes, sure. yeah. whenever, whenever, <laughs> whenever I say it, it is right. You're co-opting like, the term, and if anyone if anyone challenges you on it, that's hate speech. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm co-opting the term psychonomics. It's inter- It's an interesting fact, and I just people look around the world and see all the shit that's going down right now and think what is humanity like fucked up is there something wrong with us well as Jordan Peterson said probably because there's lots of things wrong with most people so there probably is something wrong with you but more, more to the point it's like we've not actually had this freedom before and we don't know what the fuck to do with that and mm. as a species we're trying to figure it out so hands, you give every- as they say right yeah yeah yeah, and, and we just haven't had the time to figure out how to create, like, the, the divorce rate. And, uh, yeah, and we can talk about how the state plays into that by paying women to whatever, to divorce men um, in, a, in a way. But I just think, you know, people have higher expectations in relationships now. They expect to be able to connect in all levels and not to argue too much and blah, blah, and all these things that were just normal before because you didn't get to choose who you married so you were just locked in and you made the best of what you could and now we go oh we're you know we're so we we we're, we're, we're failing yeah we're failing because we've not actually had the freedom to succeed for long enough to figure out how to do it correctly mm. and you know we're, so we're, we're seeing a generation of people who are trying to make it illegal to offend one another you know Maybe. right we need to toughen the fuck up a bit. We've got if that's the result yeah. of these idle hands, and and maybe maybe this ties into the drug conversation yeah, because, too. The the prevalence of recreational drug use is is a byproduct of having too much freedom and too much security and too much spare time. Existential dread sets in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing like um, you know, this is going to sound weird, but there's nothing like a world war for people to pull their bootstraps up and start. You know, like looking at their society around them and going, yeah, I'm going to fight for this and fight for something bigger than me. You know, I don't advocate war at all, but it's these yeah. crisis situations where people actually rise to the occasion and, and stop being so introspective and, and selfish, I think. Yeah, well, if you if you haven't faced, like, say, the real hardship of going to what what doesn't even need to be that working in a factory, doing something that's really grueling. It's very much in the and you, yeah, and you feel shit, right? You feel like crap, and you can't well, figure out why you feel like crap. It must be because someone offended you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, you're looking, you're looking to the environment to say, well, why do I feel so bad? Oh, it must be capitalism. It must mm-hmm. be capitalism. That must be the reason why it's so bad. Oh, it mu- You know, you you don't have any real problems in your life. But you feel anxious, so you need to find something out in the world that's making you anxious, or you know, you 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 feel depressed 
even though all your material needs are met. So you think it must be something to do with the world, and then you you know rail against free speech because oh minorities, and that even though that minorities in Western society have a better standard of living, not only than most people in the world, but most people who have ever lived ever 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 right mm. so it's like you know um they're, they're not going out talking about the poor standards of living under dictatorial african regimes where you know that oppress their people where i'm talking about the worst places in the world you know some of them are in africa and uh, there's what's going on in yemen they're talking about african you know americans and who, who, if they were a nation, would be one of the richest nations in the world. Like, um, they're not the most disadvantaged people in the world. Um, so it seems to me that it's more of a psychological phenomenon. The fact that it defies rationality would suggest that it's more of a psychological phenomenon than a, than a rational one. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's like there's so many parallel, massive like globe-spanning social experiments going on, just like, you know, things that come to mind are like the the pill for women, you know, it's totally yeah. changed the relationship of sex between men and women. Yeah. Um, the rise of like just, you know, social media technology. Um, and it's like that boil, boiling frogs thing, like we're all here and it's just happening to us. And there's there's yeah. been so much change in the last, you know, even like 20 years, yeah. but we're in the midst of it. So people kind of don't realize in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't realize how weird the world is. And yeah. here we are. We're just fucking monkeys. And yeah. we're sitting here. You know, you're on the other side of the world. <clears throat> and we're having this conversation. And at the end of the day, we... We could do this 10 have, years ago. No. And we have no idea, like, what to make of it. And like you said, we're just fumbling our way through it, trying to work out how to do it. So, I mean, <laughs> you guys brought up so much stuff. I don't even know where to start to, <laughs> to respond or, like, what to pick up on. But um, the thing about the... Uh, to bring it back to the UBI thing, because um, the economics thing, it always comes out of this scarcity idea, which all of yeah. economics is based on scarcity. You know, like That's resources right. are limited and human desires are infinite. And the, uh, yeah. one of the arguments that I understand from UBI <laughs> is that we're moving to a time of abundance and there's not going to be scarcity right. anymore. And I don't... That, that's true. Like it used to be that, you know, maybe two thirds of or even 90 percent of people were engaged in agriculture just to survive. Yeah. And now it's probably less than one percent of people that actually have to do that to feed everyone. Like not that everyone's being yeah. fed, but it was, um, time when it was almost everyone. And, and right. autom automation and, will only increase over time. But sure. but I think there will there will still be jobs because, like you said, now that the scarcity is being pushed into other areas and like the those of us who are in this new economy and my, my partner is as well. Like she just makes Facebook content and people pay her voluntarily. You know, she puts everything yeah. out for free and that, that is the new model, you know, in this, yeah. in this time of abundance that you've got to put everything out to, for free because you're just yes. competing against, you know, what is it on YouTube? Yeah. It's like something like, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many million minutes of YouTube footage is uploaded like every month or so, but you know, sure. that's the free market in action. Like, you know, anyone watching this now, they, I'm, I'm very grateful if you're watching this yeah. now because you have every so single video that ever was Dude, there. You've that's got, right. You've got so, PewDiePie to be yeah. watching. What are you doing watching mm -hmm. us? <laughs> no, that's well, that please stay, please stay. That, that, <laughs> That speaks You're to much hunger. more of a cutie pie than PewDiePie, James. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Sam, what were you saying? 
Well, it just speaks to the the hunger that people have for these sorts of uh, conversations. Um, so I think there is a, and that, that comes back if you want to tie it into the drug thing, like people are searching for meaning in their lives and, you know, that that's what they come to this sort of thing for. They want those long form conversations that actually hit the deep issues and not just like the superficial bullshit on mainstream media. So That's right. And, um, yeah, I think probably as we go to a post-scarcity society, most work will be, like, mentoring and teaching people specific skills. Um, The thing is, it's such nonsense because we're constantly told classroom sizes are too big. The waiting list for – there's not enough nurses. The waiting list for healthcare is so long. So how are you telling me that we're running out of jobs at the same time as you're telling me that, oh, there's so many old people who are dejected in their homes and they have no social – they have no social contact. How can you tell me that at the same time as telling me there's no jobs? Mm -hmm. So most of the jobs will be something that involves a human touch and – engagement and i'm optimistic about the future um automation presents challenges but i think the main fallacy that people have regarding automation is they believe that it accelerates wealth to the top well it might actually um it might actually make people very wealthy but what they don't understand is that the benefits of automation they think that some people will have a few trillion pounds and everyone else will be poor well who's going to make them trillionaires if they can't afford to buy their goddamn products do you know what i mean it's like one of the things that people don't realize is that the benefits of automation are distributed by the market because if i create a machine that does the job of one of my employees i need to my cost of production go down and if I don't reduce the price of the product someone else will use that innovation to so so the the benefits of automation are redistributed because they lower the cost of production and therefore lower the cost of products that's one way the other way is the reason why wages are so much higher um, than they were, say, 200 years ago, is because one automation allows one person to do the work that 40 people or 200 people used to ha- be required to do. So their labor is more valuable because they're working for machines. Therefore, their employer has to pay them more. Otherwise, someone else will pay them more. There is a labor market. So people don't. People think that the benefits of automation will just go to the people who own the machines, but it's not. And what uh, it's distributed throughout society by the market, and the freer the market, the quicker it'll be distributed. But that will, over time, rather than put people out of jobs, as all the products and services in the economy become cheaper, the number of hours that people need to work to make a living should go down as well. I say should go down because obviously the government can intervene to fuck it up and they probably will. Uh, but <laughs> how successful they, how successful they will be. Um, you know, if your weekly shop costs half what it does now, if it used to be 100 bucks and now it's only 50 bucks, well, you know, you don't need to work to earn the, fifth, the extra 50 bucks. So you need to work less to be able to afford the same amount of stuff. That's how automation will gradually um, enrich the lives of everyone. And 
in a way, it's basically serving as a UBI by making things cheaper. Mm. We're also mm. seeing a whole new sector Please. emerging um, in the sharing economy, you know, with, with uh, things like Airbnb and Uber yeah. being the sort of most yeah. prevalent and successful examples. But I remember from years ago when I was living in Sydney, uh, fairly close to the CBD, I forget the name of the company, but there was just a, a car share um, company, and I'm sure there are lots and lots of them now around the world, yeah. the Western world, where Tools. people don't own a car anymore because you can just uh, be a member of a, a group who collectively um, have access, and you just book in the times you want it, and you just, you know, you've got your key, and you go and get it, and and you know, following from the model that was probably pioneered by eBay of you know having a social media, um, you know, rating system to say, well, here's a bad customer, so let's. Let's you know we can kick them off if they if they wreck the car and they'll have to pay whatever fees. But um, if people abuse their times, then they'll get bad ratings. You know that there are all these sectors emerging where it's going to our the the things that we think are our needs now um, will not necessarily be our needs in 50 years as, yeah. as the economy changes. Yeah, and, and apps are so good for that. I mean, when they develop the self-driving car a lot of people might not need to have a car because you just put all the data of who wants to go where and you can pick people up along the way and choose the most efficient use of that seated vehicle to take you know it might be a minibus you know you can you, the computer will figure out how to get that vehicle to drive the least distance while dropping everyone off at their destinations um, and it's interesting that you mentioned things like Uber and uh, Lyft share and um, you know, I think of TripAdvisor as an example because there's so much stuff that's come out in the last few years that the technology has been there to do it for, for 10 years right so see even if they put a complete ban on inventing anything new for 10 years, because like the pace of change, we would just be able to use the technology that we've got. Uh, would still speed, like something like TripAdvisor, they could have invented that in 2000. You know, the, tech, the internet was there, the technology was there, but so, someone only did it later on. Someone only thought of it later on. Like, it's, it's amazing the, the, the rate of the progress. It, it boggles belief. Uh, you know, boggles the mind. So let's talk briefly, Sven, about um, one of the one of the newest and hottest technologies on the scene, which is blockchain. Like, what do you see as the potential there? Is there anything beyond Bitcoin uh, in that technology? Well, I would correct you first off and say it's Bitcoin, not blockchain. That that's the technology. But um, okay. yeah, I mean, what Anthony was saying about. Can you, can you clarify about... that distinction? Well, yeah, blockchains are. Is just part of the technology in Bitcoin, and it's a hype word. And lots of other, you know, altcoins, copycat currencies have tried to, you know, use blockchain and claim that they are bringing something new. But what I try and tell people is that Bitcoin is bringing an economic revolution. It's not a technological one, and it ties into what Anthony was saying about the the UBI and that if if everyone just has their income for free, you know, like where's where's that money coming from? Most likely, the government's just printing it out of thin air because fiat currency is an unsound money they can just print it at will and the revolution the economic revolution that bitcoin is is that it's hard money and they you know you can't inflate the supply um and that comes back to what capitalism what it actually gives to us and that's a way of organizing society and the price the price mechanism is the way we know you know how much value something has and any kind of central planning it can never solve this um price calculation problem um so yeah like that's where my real reverence for money comes from because 
through having this sort of abstract idea of money, we can value everything else in it and organize society that way. So what about universal basic Bitcoin? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, it's an interesting thing because there is a company online that's created a cryptocurrency and offers, I actually remark on it in the book, I say um, they, they, they offer a universal basic income in their um, cryptocurrency. In their worthless no shitcoin. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? No one wants to trade with it. Why? Because yeah. there's no labor behind it. No one's yeah. sacrificed yeah. to make that. The, the point of money should be, here is a certificate that says, I have served my fellow man. Mm. You know? They've exchanged something so that for, with me, so it's a, a token of value. It's a store, and I can take that to someone else, you know, and <clears throat> and say, well, I felt served my fellow man, so so you you're you can serve me, you know, in exchange for this, so that you can get someone else to serve you, you know, so I can get someone else to serve me. It's a it's a chain. And if, yeah, uh, the way if, if this is a new idea to anyone watching, people who aren't sort of economically literate, um, I would strongly suggest checking this book out. Um, Love. Especially there's a fantastic speech somewhere near the middle of the middle of the book by Danconia um, about, um, yeah. you know, is money the root of all evil? Sven wrote an article on our website about it some time ago, that question, but he gives a fantastic speech about it being exactly as you just described, a certificate of goodwill between men. Right. What were you going to say, Sven? Yeah. Oh, I was going to mention what Anthony was just saying reminded me of like the way I like to characterize money now. It's, it's like crystallized human life force and energy. You know, right. it's just a little token that you put your energy and your time into and you can trade it out into the future. You can put your life force into something that you can spend in the future. So Magic like man. money is the... I really believe that money is like the most important technology that humans ever invented. And I, I truly believe that like Bitcoin is the, you know, it's going to be the greatest revolution that's, that's ever happened since that time. So it's exciting times. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> right. Not, not yet. Getting there. Well, Sven, you wow. had a couple of other things on our agenda. There's been speaking of how absolutely insane the world has become. Uh, not just that, you know, we, we three monkeys can sit in opposite corners of the world and uh, chat to each other through a screen and have voyeurs at home watching and enjoying our rantings. Um, now we've got Count Dankula and Sargon of Akkad visiting the EU Parliament to make speeches. I mean, what, what, what the hell yeah, is going on? Yeah, like, <laughs> they started out like us, just, just mm. uh, speaking to their YouTube mm. audience. Well, I mean, Sargon put up a, a funny video where he was just sitting on his couch at the, at the hotel um, afterwards and he's just like, what the fuck is going on? You know, I, I just wanted to make a joke about a pug, you know, and my girlfriend's yeah. pug. I'm not supposed to be at the EU parliament. So hilarious yeah. like that these people are becoming, um, you know, political leaders and important figures in, in, a, in a social revolution. It's, well, in this time of social media, like they, they are thought leaders, they are influencers, mm. as, as they say, you know, and they've got a huge reach, you know, so yeah. it's that that's how the world is going now. And it's, it's really weird, like Sargon, Sargon said, like, 
I just wanted to play computer games, you know, and then Gamergate happened and he got drawn into all this feminist bullshit. And this was a um, an effect of the free market as well, because the feedback he got from people voluntarily watching his move, his videos is like they wanted more of that stuff. And, you know, he just kept doing what he was doing in response to the feedback from people. This is how volunteerism is supposed to work. And now he has built up this platform and he's creating value like what he produces the content he produces is very valuable for people and you know people people trust him now and it's it's really weird because now the same thing is sort of happening to to us as well like james you you just interviewed um a sitting australian senator mm. senator Lanehelm, and mm. <laughs> i i shared that post on facebook and today i had a little thing come up and senator Lanehelm has liked your post to me and i'm like who the fuck am I that an Australian senator is liking one of my posts on Facebook? But um, yeah, who the fuck are you, Sven? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, you're you're part of part of the movement who are you know going to get people like him re-elected and 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 help other people like Senator Lanehelm emerge. And as I mentioned, uh, as I asked him, we're seeing you know this this two-party system we've had in Australia for a long time that's very similar to what what you have in Britain and uh, very similar to what exists in America. But in Australia, we are seeing, especially in the Senate, independent voices and small parties and all of these sort of, you know, fringe elements coming in and actually having some legislative power in changing the face of, of, of Australia. Uh, it's, it's an amazing time because the systems as we know them are breaking down. Money is, is, is going to die as we know, like fiat currency, I should say, which is not For actually sure. money, is, is on its death throes. Um, and, and then technologies like Bitcoin are emerging to change it. This is a radical revolutionary time. And now independent voices and libertarians are starting to emerge into positions of power. We're going to see the UKIP party. We, we might even see Sargon and Dankula in public office at some point, you know? Yeah, it could happen. Tommy Robinson yeah, you know, could, be in, could be a prime <laughs> minister one day. You, you just never know because of the way the landscape is changing so rapidly. For sure. It's a it's a very interesting time to be alive. It's we're lucky to to bear witness to the birth of the new world, man. We're mm. we're 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 the only generation that has one foot in the old one and uh, one foot in the new one. I mean, you you guys probably like me remember before internet, you know? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's like it was you know people are so people fully grown adults were born after the internet was invented. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was just explaining yeah. it to my seven-year-old son yesterday. I was just like, you know, the things that, that we enjoy together today, you know, watching uh, an episode of Lego Ninjago on Netflix, this is this is new stuff. This is really, really new. And I, I told him about, you know, um, the sort of plays that used to be put on in ancient Greece. And I said yeah. that was the way that people shared stories and disseminated information and, and changed the world. And, and now you just, like, you don't need to go to the cinema anymore. You get your movies straight to Netflix and it's a better experience at home. And I, I'm even hopeful that the internet, to a degree, has made people somewhat more rational because in the old days, if you had a debate in the pub, you know, uh, you couldn't... You couldn't fact check anything where it's now we go, okay, if we have a disagreement, we go, well, let's Google it and find out who's right. Uh, and no, as I... people... Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, as people grow up with the phenomenon of being able to fact check things, it's it's harder to be um, prejudiced and parochial. 
at least without everyone making fun of you for it because you're not accepting a blatant fact. Yeah. But sorry, you were saying. Well, I was just about to say I'm looking forward to uh, the time that I think is is imminent when we when the common parlance changes of let me Google that and we ditch the Google and we you know come up with a more universal and generic term because because yeah. Google is beginning to prove itself to be uh, not as yes. helpful as it used to be in in the quest for truth. Well, well we that already gives have... me. Sorry, that, that gives me an excuse to share another one of the truth tags. You might like this one, Anthony. Is that and the, uh, Yeah, yeah, and it is good. And I do believe that. And I get infuriated at people because people, especially on the left, have, have views. I meet people who have got views that I think belong 15 years ago under Bush. And I'm like... <laughs> You know, you know that the world has moved on in the last fifteen years. Like, what the hell? Like, just how come you're still saying that, parroting the same slogans that people were saying fifteen years ago? You've got access to so much more information, and I did see that. Um, what was there a move in uh, in America sometimes when people were having debates or that the the news channels actually fact check their claims as they as they made them. Mm. Now that might be pioneering technology. I mean, if that takes off, okay, of course the network could lie, and in, in place of their favourite candidate, and um, you know fact check incorrectly. Someone fact checks the fact checkers. Um, it's massive humiliation for a mainstream news channel if the papers started saying oh they were biased you know they, they fact they said that this was a fact when it wasn't a fact because it's news. their preferred candidate <laughs> yeah uh, it's a, uh, yeah i've monopol sorry, i've made capital upon these uh, slogans that are going around today you know i talk about the era of fake news a little bit in my book and by the way guys at home if you're not already get the book be yeah. yourself and love it.com forward slash ubi it will enrich you. Yeah, sorry. Indeed. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, fake news is one of the even just the hashtag of fake news is uh, is it's sort funny. of like a technology, right? That's emerged in, yeah. in the last uh, two years since since Trump has come into power, and it begins as a joke. You know, all of these things begin yeah. as a meme or a joke. Um, and but someone like Trump, he's he's just hammering that line, and yeah. he has um, almost single handedly brought the trust in mainstream media down to all-time lows. He is, so there's, there's another revolutionary element in our time is that our information sources um, are now no longer trustworthy and we're sceptical mm. of everything. We're even sceptical of our favourite um, sources and, and we do begin, I think the wise, do begin to fact-check more. And so it becomes less tolerable James, when you run you into people that, but... who... Sorry. You say that, but why should I believe you? <laughs> nice. Well, this is this is exactly because ignorance um, is a choice. <laughs> right. Right. Well, this is a great. It's a great bumper sticker, right? But I mean, I always think of the other side, and you know, is it the age of information or is it the age of inf dis um, misinformation, mm. right? Um, and propaganda, and it's been it's so easy for them to propagandize us now, and it's kind of. I don't know if you want to call it ironic, but Alex Jones nailed it. I don't know when he started InfoWars, but it is. It's Information Wars. An and info it's, war. it's, meme, it's meme wars, right? You know, and and like Mike, that, that idea of fake news, that's a meme. So, yeah. 
it might get to the point where there's so much information that no one can tell truth from falsehood at all. Who fucking knows? Next thing they're going to put a neurochip at the bottom of your neck and you'll be plugged into the fucking whatever. But um, I, I, yeah, th- I, I think it's say- a good thing, though, that people are in constant doubt. I think it's a good thing right. that we've reached the most sceptical mm. time where we, we don't trust any single source. And so we look for verification and we look right. for... We look for people who have established trust and who have a great track record. And, and we, we trust our instincts a lot more on a person-to-person level. I think this is kind a good like development. The, it is, but on the political level, it's annoying that everyone needs to be an expert on this stuff because you shouldn't have to know anything about it to function in the world. It's just the fact that everyone gets a vote, and no matter how incompetent or you know, whatever they are, I've, as I say, one of these days I'm going to get into trouble for saying one of these things. But I, I love, uh, you mentioned memes, and I love meme culture. It's so clever. Like, to be able to convey a whole bunch of information in a quick image that you can look at in a second is really, it's a technology, it's a, it's an art form. I, mm. you know, now under attack an, by the by the EU, I believe. Yeah, like 13, my right? Uh, right, and my um, like my handle on um, Instagram is rolled up sleeves fam, like, and I just it's just it just started as a silly stand, and one because I like rolling up my sleeves, and the other one is I, I love I just like the 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 meme of fam, like what <laughs> up fam, like mm. yeah, uh, yeah yeah like. Uh, you know, just the word fam because it's so silly. Like it's like half of the word family or not even, and you just <laughs> refer to anyone. It's fam- and it sounds so silly when you say it out loud. Yeah, it's quite pretentious. But yet somehow, yeah, but yet somehow on the internet it's perfectly acceptable. So yeah. I thought I was a, I, I was like I used it as a silly way, and I just put it in as a stand-in while I thought of an Instagram account uh, name. But then it just stuck, and like people still um, say things about. Um, rolled up sleeves or like my predictive I can put up my predictive text showing thinking that I'm going to type in fa like I'm using it satirically, right? I'm not the kind of person who'd say that. I think most so, people are uh, these days, yeah, you know, yeah, these things become yeah, a I, joke I, in screen, I just I just screenshot it and put that up on my Instagram, the fact that my predictive text thinks I'm going to say fam next. Mm. And people laugh and they like that because they get their in on the joke. Yeah. Right. But there's so there's so many layers yeah, in, cr- in the yeah. meme culture now, you know, yeah. and and it moves so quickly now. You can kind of see it uh, like it's almost like it comes in waves. Like just in the last couple of weeks, like what did we have? The Colin Kaepernick, um, the Nike ad, and man, that went off like a ad, rocket. Uh, what you know, hell, we had man. a week. We had a week, and it's still happening now of solid Colin Kaepernick memes. And then you know the I next know I thing. I hated it as well. <laughs> Well, but, you know, you don't have to wait too long because within, you know, five or ten days, like, the next thing comes along and, I mean, it's it's just amazing. Yeah, and I, saw a, I saw a great meme today and uh, I'll try to, after I um, stop talking about it in this moment, I'll try to bring it up to share, but it was, um, you know, illustrating that with Article 13 that's um, preventing people from using stock images for their memes, uh, making uh, legal sanctions against people for using stock images... Um, there may be a surge in memes that are hand-drawn in MS Paint. <laughs> so that could be the next wave of memes. Like it. Probably not for me because I'm terrible at drawing. <laughs> now, um, 
in in the world of ridiculous again, I just am seeing constantly in my newsfeed over and over in the last week or so um, the based Dalai Lama. As, uh, oh, yeah. oh yeah, good one. <laughs> oh my god, that you mean guy the, has... the alt right fascist Dalai Lama? Yeah, he's now a member of the alt right. <laughs> that guy must have balls the size of Tibetan singing bowls. I really mean it. <laughs> he's got no fucks to give. He's coming, he's coming back. I know, he doesn't give a shit, case, man. So. <laughs> he, is, okay. he, is, he is a brave motherfucker. So he is we a should, brave motherfucker. There, there may be a few people who aren't up on the, uh, the news on there. And uh, Sven, why don't, you, why don't you tell our audience what uh, he said? He said that um, Europe is for Europeans and that they, the migrants should go home and build their own countries. I'm quoting the Dalai Lama. Well, that's not a, that's not a direct quote. That's a paraphrase. He, I think he said it in so, much more sort of say. like soft and peaceful sort of, you know, beautiful Buddhist language. But it was very yeah. clear that he said, yeah, yeah. the... the, the pretty um, close to that. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was bang, bang on, really. Yeah, um, more or less. He just said, you know, once the crisis is over, they should go back home because... Well, people people don't like have, having their whole culture changed fundamentally. Hmm. Well, no, it's not it's not even that. It's I think that's something that he says out of compassion. He wants them to yes, go yeah. back and fix their own countries. Yeah. You know, the worst thing is that all if all the smart people from your country leave and go to the West, then who's left behind to yeah. to run the country that they're leaving? So. Hmm. Well, why doesn't yeah. he go? Why doesn't he get the fuck back to Tibet then? <laughs> oh wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Yeah. Now, but he this can, is now issue. you're banned in China, bro. It is He's banned. It is an ethnic tribalism issue too, because we're seeing more and more and more, and we're seeing that this is the real fuel under the fire of the alt right and and the the extremes, um, you know, the extreme factions of of the the right wing, who are recognizing quite rightly that there is no country for white men in the current um, you know mainstream narrative that. Um, People from African countries, people from Asia, Jews, all lots of different tribes from different ethnic backgrounds are quite comfortable saying my people and saying I'm proud right. to be Jewish, I'm proud to be um, Chinese and I love my country and, and China is for the Chinese and Korea is for the Koreans, Japan is for the Japanese. Um, but if you say that as a white person about countries that are predominantly white, um, you know, and, and, and especially Britain seems to be going insane. Like Britain is the source of, you know, you, you could definitely make a case against white Australia because it's a colony, right? But Britain has a very, very long history of being a British country. <laughs> and, um, and if you can't even say that um, or present an argument to say that Britain is for the Britons, then, um, then why, do, why do we have the double standard, you know, amongst different peoples? And and maybe maybe it's that um, the Dalai Lama is is Tibetan and he is, you know, he has a, a strong sense of his own people and he is able to recognise that people, you know, birds of a yeah, feather a, tend to flock together. They work well. When he's an outsider looking in. Mm. He's an outsider looking in and he's able to see what's going on. But you know, he's got. A lot, I like the Dalai Lama. You know, I've seen him on some panels and one thing I really like about him is. As a person who people look up to, he's never afraid to say, I don't know. Like, I've seen people have asked him questions and, and he said, he's given his perspective and he says, I don't know, you know, maybe more research is needed. And the people that kind of gravitas don't usually do that. Um, I think the thing about the whole migrant thing is it's like 
the West is not under attack. It's committing suicide. Mm. We we don't have a fundamental belief in the value of our own institutions that are worth valuing. Like, uh, I mean, in the UK, the NHS and the BBC are seen, uh, or at least until recently, have seen fundamental British institutions, but not capitalism. So, given we have a BBC, if we were why a uh, you know, a nationalised broadcasting agency, it would be running the free-to-choose documentaries by Milton Friedman. They'd be doing shows on Hayek and Mises and, you know, talking about how free trade made Britain the richest country in the world. And um, we, we, we have a... People aren't standing up for the things that are worth standing up for in Western cultures. Then we spend ridiculous amounts of money... Um, locking up criminals so-called who for victimless crimes okay well we can waste money doing that and then we spend so much money bombing um, Muslim countries destabilizing the region making people hate us even more than they do and then they flee those countries into Europe um, it's absolutely crazy we at the same time we don't open up free trade with the rich with, with the poorest countries in the world we could be importing cheap goods from africa sending our money over there in exchange helping those economies develop so that people don't feel the need to flee from those countries we should we should be trading with the poorest countries in the world to bring up their standard of living so that there isn't this massive drive to escape and come over here we should be exp- we should be going around the world extolling the virtues of free markets because a b- bunch of african countries got worse uh, until about the end of the 80s after the after the colonists left because they tried their experiments with sultanism and marxism anything but capitalism why because capitalism was the system of the colonialists so whatever we want we don't want that <laughs> right it wasn't until maybe the 90s that some of these countries started saying, eh, well, you know what, maybe some free market. And it wasn't actually without uh, Western aid. I mean, uh, Western countries armed dictators in Africa. Um, and one particularly um, egregious case, the France um, backed the Hutu government in massacring about a million Tutis over coming up to, over over a period of a decade, you know. So there was external influences that maybe exacerbated the situation and yet some of the countries that there were the most colonialized are doing a lot better than some of the countries that are least colonialized. So it's a whole combination of factors. And it's we not, have to it's have... not just a will to power from white people. That may be part of the no. equation, but it's not just will to power. It's also no. the development of innovations and technologies that can only emerge through uh, decades or centuries and of capitalism market. and free market in practice. Yeah. And the, the regular people in Britain, for example, didn't benefit from colonialism. I mean, they had to pay uh, tariffs on their grains at a time when when um, grain was the when bread was the majority of spending for people on low incomes, so they were being taxed for these colonial adventures. I'm sure some people, you know, some people, some rich people benefited from it from the booty, but you know, the average white person didn't benefit from colonialism. The, the government might have, the the robber barons might have, but 
you know. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag, you know. Mm. Uh, you could argue that um, our medical technology and things like that create our... <laughs> the medical technology invented in the West created population explosions in Africa, arguably arguably it was that it might just be that i mean we had a population explosion after our industrial revolution uh, all, all countries do um, so that might not have been a good thing in some places where they were already having trouble feeding everyone to create mm. a population explosion i think we can we can Sorry. kind of tie this we can kind of tie this all back into where we started tonight um, with the drugs and to me uh, it's like governments have an addiction to these sort of superficial fixes and rather than yeah. recognizing that it's it's capitalism and sort of these western values yeah. of individual freedoms is what creates the wealth in these western countries yeah. rather than exporting those values to yeah. these poorer nations we like the solution from government is just just it's the solution that's um, suggested is just something that looks good and compassionate. It's, it's just another right. addiction to virtue signaling. Let's yeah. let's bring them over here, and you know we can look like the saviors, and you know yeah. it's only making the problem worse. So it's just another addiction. Yes, we should be setting a good example, and we should be offering to help educate people who want to follow the example, teach them how to do it. Mm. And one of the most destructive things that the West does in places like Africa is just dumping all this um, mm -hmm. uh, foreign aid on them. And yeah. then again, it's just like, you know, it's sort of on the macro scale um, in, with individuals within a state, we have the welfare system and that disincentivizes people from being self-sufficient if they know they're just going to get free handouts. So in the, by the same token, if we're just dumping money in there, they don't have any incentive to build up their own uh, countries and their own economies. Yeah, and, and a lot of the, the welfare is basically corporate welfare for our, for whatever the favourite colour, because we say we give you, well, we'll give you a billion pounds, but you have to spend 700 million of it on British goods from, from these companies, you know. And meanwhile, I think uh, the, the African economist George Ayeti wrote a great book called Africa and Chaos 20 years ago. He's talking about at the time where the total aid to Africa was 30 billion a year, roughly, 400 billion was escaping African corruption into Swiss bank accounts from these. Uh, so you know, you're you're pouring um, Western, you're you're giving rich people in poor countries money at the expense of poor people in rich countries, and often you're helping prop up um, dictators. So export ideas, please, not our, not money. <laughs> You know, mm. yeah, yeah, and lead lead the way, lead by example, and I guess I guess it's important, and maybe this is a good place to wrap it up, to to remind you know ourselves constantly that the 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 way to navigate through all of these very complex uh, complex problems in the world is with nuance, and to recognise that um, good can come from evil, and evil can come from yeah. good. You know that that there's nothing like take colonialism as an example that we look at. Mm -hmm. um, a great many evils were done in the name of spreading the British colony around the world, right? Mm -hmm. But um, but if we fast forward to today and we look at, you know, like take our colony of Australia for example. Yes, great atrocities have been done against the Aboriginal people. But Stefan Molyneux was recently out here, and he he uh, in his speeches at his tour made a, a very compelling case for the fact that, you know. Yes, there were atrocities, but there were atrocities happening before 
um, yeah. white people arrived here that, that, that far exceeded potentially the atrocities that were done against Aboriginal people. They were doing it to, the, to each other. The standard of living, the life expectancy, the, the health um, outcomes for many Aboriginals, not all Aboriginals, but for many Aboriginals is, is much, much better now. So there has been some good come from the evil of colonialism, just as, you know, the, the good of um, the Christian charitable values can also um, lead people into the, the delusion of socialism and, and ultimately communism. That, that is a great evil in itself. So we need to look at every problem and, and history with nuance and, and an understanding that it's nothing is all good or yeah. all bad. And there's there's nothing worse um, in that front than colonialism because you've got two narratives. One is that, oh, you know, we went over and we exploited these people and uh, blah, 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 the one that most people believe. And then there's one from the alt-right, which is they're lucky that we even stepped foot there. You know, mm. they were a bunch of savages. And neither's actually true. Not um, wholly true there, for there's all a, cases. No, no. Na, na, no. Um, you know, there, there's plenty of examples of... of um, good and bad that have come and you know as you say as you both alluded to you know everyone's allowed their homeland apart from uh, white people I'm, I'm not uh, a white nationalist but I I, I mean I'm according to the alt-right I'm not even white because I'm Jewish so but <laughs> yeah, I do yeah, think, right. I do I do think they should slice a bit off America and give it to the white nationalists so they can just go right there you go there's your country do whatever you want yeah. um, but but what I mean to say is that um, the Arab, you know, the Arabs took more slaves than Europeans did. It's just that they castrated their slaves and worked them to death. Yeah. So there's no black black people in the Middle East to go pay us reparations. And yet, if you take your case with James, which you made, is why is everyone allowed to have a homeland except for white people? People say, well, you know, whites have been the repressive race and blah 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 blah. Okay, but you know. Um, you, you don't hold Muslims to the same standard, even though they were even worse than white people were to their slaves. So the, the, a lot of nuance is necessary, and um, we can't fall victim to black and white narratives, although uh, most people do because it's the easiest. And then once you get into a narrative, you keep on feeding yourself information that backs up your narrative. And um, Yeah, and I always try and bring a little bit of nuance and more than one angle to, to these issues. Mm, indeed. Well, I think I think that's the way forward. That's certainly what we're aiming at at the Rational Rise. We've been doing it for about two years and it's steadily growing. And thank you to everyone at home who's tuning in for watching tonight and uh, taking part in the conversation. I think uh, we've been so riveted here with the three of us. We've we've neglected the yeah. comments section a little bit, but we'll um we'll catch up later on. And we invite you to uh, share the video and uh, you know like the page on Facebook. Uh, there's the James Fox Higgins show, which is my stream. There'll be a show from Sven emerging soon on the Rational Rise. We're getting uh, lots of new people coming on board in the near future and lots more exciting interviews coming up. Anthony Samaroff, thank you for joining us tonight and we'll give one more plug to your book. It Great. It is uh, Universal um, Basic Income For and Against. Where will the people find it? BeYourselfAndLoveIt.com forward slash UBI. I would just like to thank you, James, for having me on your show. It's one of my favorite shows that I've done certainly in a while. Sven, great to talk to you again. It's been a little while. And um, you keep the rational rising, please. We'll certainly try. We're thanks, trying. thanks, Sven. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thanks, everyone at home. Thanks, brother. All right. We'll see you guys soon. That's been the James Fox Higgins Show for this week. Catch you later. Hey, guys. This is James Fox Higgins for The Rational Rise. I hope you enjoyed that presentation. 
If you like the content we're producing, there are a number of ways you can support us to help us make more. Head to our website, therationalrise.com, to read our written articles, sign up to our mailing list, and to view the t-shirts, mugs, and other merchandise that we have for sale. We'd also love it if you'd become a Patreon supporter, and for as little as $5 a month you can donate to our project to ensure that we're producing content every week to stimulate your mind. You can also purchase a copy of my book, The Ghost of Emily, which is available in paperback and Kindle editions from Amazon right now. It's action-packed science fiction loaded with philosophy. 